Welcome to Trials Miles Podcast, a podcast where we talk about life's ups and downs and the beauty of it all. I'm your host, Casey Hool. Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of the Trials and Miles podcast. My first interviewee is none other than the greatest man alive. I might be a little biased, but my husband, Nate Hool. Who else would I start with? Thanks for helping me out with this, Nate. I Hopefully I can uh, kick this thing off with you the best we can. <laughs> if anybody knows us, you know that... The reason we might even be interested in a Trials and Miles podcast is because we have gone through a lot of trials. We, as in mostly Nate. Um, So I'm going to take the back seat on this one and try not to be biased or enter in my opinions or thoughts about the past few years that we've had together, but just let it all come from him, which will be how this will go in any other episode. Um, so that being said, Nate, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So before we start, give us a little bit of your background information. Where'd you come from? When do you like? Just, we want to know you. Tell us who you are. Yeah. So currently I'm old. I broke the 30 barrier a couple of years ago. Now uh. 30, 32. I had a, uh. I don't even know if midlife crisis is the right word for when I turned 30. It was like an end-of-life crisis. <laughs> I thought it was done. And yeah. so... He kind of did. <laughs> and so I'm 32. I am. I feel like I've done a, a few things that I want to in this life, but I'm still trying to move in a direction that I want to go in. But uh, I was born in Colorado, Grand Junction to be specific, and then uh, sooner or later migrated to Utah, where I consider home now. Um, Lived in Orem and Linden for a while, uh, down in like Utah County area. Uh, Went to school at Southern Utah University for college and then Georgia State University for grad school. Go Uh, Panthers. Go go Panthers. Um, After that, we got back to Utah, starting with Cedar City and then back to Utah County. So kind of just traced everything backwards. Um, Through, man, since I was seven, I was running, um, eight was my first national championship meet, and so we were operating at kind of a higher level pretty early on, and that was a huge part of my life. I played a lot of sports growing up. So explain to them what kind of running, because they might sure. not know. Sure, track mostly, but I bounced around. I did the pentathlon for a little while, and I did my best event in the pentathlon was either the 1500 or the, the 80 meter hurdles. I actually love people don't know this I love the short hurdles even as an athlete not just as a spectator but I love the short hurdles I thought I did pretty well at that um bounced around did uh, cross country and track and in college started migrating back down to like the 400 a little bit 400 800 a little bit more and kind of ditched the 15 although I did do some steeplechase in there hence you know the hurdle stuff a little brag moment from his wife Nate is freakishly talented. He could have done anything from field events, jumps, hurdles, sprints, whatever he probably could have, whatever he chose, he probably could have done, but he landed in mid-distance. I think that was probably the, you know, the, the sweet spot a little bit. Um, I was no good at cross, 
so she brags about me, but I was trash in cross country, so that was not on my list of good events. Track and field. It was, let's Track stick, and field. Yeah, let's stick anything. to the oval. Let's stick to the oval. Um, so yeah, so a lot of my life was that, but I actually really enjoy being outside more than I actually do it. I enjoy it. I wish I could do it more, but I like doing things. I uh, I raced a little bit, mountain bike, just some local races through junior high and high school. And, um, I don't know. I always did the whole basketball, soccer, football stuff growing up. And um, I actually did a year of skeleton up at the uh, Park City, um, whatever you call it, bobsled track, I guess, up at the Olympic Park. Very glad you didn't stick with that. <laughs> well, I was, again, I was terrible at that too. <laughs> so apparently you have to weigh more than whatever I was, 100 pounds maybe. <laughs> didn't work. Um, but yeah, I did, I did a few of those. My mom would drag us up as kids to a bunch of those uh, events they would do before the Olympics came to Salt Lake. So I did that and uh, speed skating and biathlon and ski jump, like aerial ski jumping, a bunch of these things just one time. And all those kinds of things are very interesting. Um, and I love doing them. But when I was in college, canyoneering became a big part of my recreation I I did a, quite a few canyons down there and um, kind of became our family and friends unofficial tour guide and I ended up just guiding people for years down a lot of the same canyons I had done that's something I'd like to do more of but um, I don't know that was a few things that maybe people always talk about me as a runner or me as a coach or whatever and so some other things I like to do, and I actually like taking pictures too. But. He's really good. We have a lot of his pictures hanging up in our house, actually. So, random little things I do, and none of them I've dedicated a, an appreciable amount of time to to do anything with. So, <laughs> a jack of all trades, and just not good at any of them. Really good at all of them. He meant to say. Um, so, what are you currently doing? Currently, I am the head cross country coach at Idaho State university um and an assistant track coach so i just coach distance and mid-distance all the time go Bengals! go Bengals! and we are in pocatello idaho we are a division one school in the big sky conference which um i i guess i can admit this on here i uh coming to pocatello was kind of like all right pocatello i guess we'll just you know tough it out but casey and i both have really enjoyed it here and we, every time we have people up at our house staying here and we show them around, it's usually the same response of, wow, it's not anything like what I see when I blast through on the freeway. You know, there's a lot of cool stuff here. And me, as someone who likes to be outside, um, I've, lear- has, you know, I've really learned to appreciate what Pocatello has. And, you know, it has a, a ton of potential down the road. So it's cool to see what maybe this place becomes in the next, you know, decade or so. Yeah, and you might have forgotten a crucial part of your background information. She's sitting across from you. Where's Walter? (laughs) (laughs) Hey. Uh, So I do. I have a uh, beautiful wife. She actually, if you guys don't know this, she has a blog, and she also is going to start a podcast. I don't know what what is it called. Um, (laughs) It's going to be good, though. I'm pretty sure of it. So, And then um, we met my last year of college down at southern utah we got married and i dragged her from the u of u out to georgia state where she graduated and finished up her division one career um but we've been happily married now for a good seven and a half years and got two cool kids both of which are 
passed out right now. <laughs> Hopefully they stay that way. Because, yeah, this would have not have happened otherwise. And so Ames and Cora, um, four and one and a half, are two of the coolest kids in the world. And they make, uh, they make every day interesting and exciting. And funny. And very funny. <laughs> we like those guys. We do. Awesome. Well... I can speak for all of us, and especially me, that you seem like a pretty cool guy. Nice. Good. <laughs> can I stay? <laughs> yes. So, there's a few major life events that you left out in that little background information. From what you told us, your life seems pretty great, grand, nothing you're great at all sports, you do photography, you have a master's degree, you're a division one coach, it seems amazing. But obviously I know that it hasn't been like that. Do you want to take us back to when some of, I mean, I'm sure you've had hard times throughout your entire life, but you've gone through some really hard times, some uncommonly hard times in the past few years. Do you want to take us back and kind of walk us through What's happened? Sure, yeah. Um, You know, a few of you guys have probably heard about this story, and so I'll try not to make it too repetitive, but um, as as my background was, um, as my background kind of, I guess, talked about a little bit, was athletics was a big part of my life. And as an athlete, I think most athletes assume that they're to some degree or another invincible and have uh, the best health profile possible and you kind of have this this mental picture of yourself as um, somebody who's very physically capable of doing things and so as an athlete and as a, you know a scholarship division one athlete you kind of feel like hey maybe I've got the whole health thing down and that wasn't maybe one of my top concerns and so when I was down at Southern Utah after grad school, when we were, it was my first coaching job, um, we had a whole, you know, that whole summer was pretty crazy where um, I had what I thought was, a, you know, a sinus infection. It kind of seemed to be recurring and um, it wasn't, it wasn't exactly that. It kind of was, I guess, but antibiotics wouldn't solve anything and then a few symptoms came up that were a little bit more concerning where you know my nose was like bleeding for like days on end and my face on my left side was going numb my teeth over there were hurting and then eventually my eyes started getting this weird black spot on the top um and a few of those things combined I was like okay this is weird and um, luckily, my mom is a nurse practitioner and, I guess, believes me when I say something's weird out of the ordinary. And so she ordered a CT right away. Went to um, an ENT, got that done in-house, like, that same day. And, you know, there we go. The whole sinus was packed with something. We didn't know what. So then we got MRI. They knew it was some kind of more tissue, not just like a, you know, a liquid or, you know, mucus type thing. And... Um, after a quick little exploratory surgery and testing it out, it came back as a, a sinus tumor. And so then began the long road of cancer, um, surgeries, therapies, and I don't want to say rehab, but really just treatments. So take us back even a step further. What was your life outside of your health at, like at this time? 
So yeah, so like I said, it was my first coaching job. We were at Southern Utah. We were right on the cusp at the time of being um, one of the best teams in the country. We were really fighting to get into the, the national championship meet. And so I was in a good place. We had a good team. Um, I was the assistant, and so recruiting was a big part of my job, and I felt like we were getting the talent in. And in the coaching world, it's really about momentum and results. And so um, I felt like we were in a really good spot. Cedar City was my alma mater, um, and and so we were happy. And we had a, our first kid as well, who was you know about the time nine months or something like that. And um, then uh, we found out with the change of school presidents that my employment was no longer possible due to the fact that the head coach was my uncle and um, nepotism laws in his in his view I guess was something that precluded my employment there and so very surprisingly to us everybody yeah yeah no one really seemed to agree with this guy it was that I could not be there anymore and of no fault of my own I suppose that we were done as of basically July 1 and that was the end. And so, so yeah, we went on the job trail at that point with very little success. And by little, I mean zero, zero success at all. Yeah, we went three months, no job. Three months, like in a, three months in a bunch of applications, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, so you just lost your job. That alone can be a pretty big trial in and of itself. Um, pretty hopeless feeling to lose your job even when you you didn't do anything at all other than make the team better I might be a little biased but I mean anybody that knows him knows Nate is an amazing coach and employee employee and it was just crazy that he got fired um so we spent the summer unemployed and towards the end of the summer is when you started feeling all these symptoms yeah yeah and that's it was really yeah I, I mean I guess that's pretty accurate it was very well timed that way in the sense that one thing ended another thing started and at the beginning those two things were very disconnected I mean they were just completely independent events um, we were both confused I was really confused because I felt like coaching was where we were supposed to be and that was my job and that was my uh you know, you go to college to get a job, and that's where I ended up deciding, and I felt very strongly about that direction, um, and I felt guided to that profession, and so after just two years in it, to be terminated like that, and, you know, what seemed like a roadblock, a pretty big one, um, didn't make sense in the grand scheme of things, and according to my vision of, you know, the roadmap that I had in my head, and so... Uh, you know, of course, roadmaps in your head are always straight lines, straight up, and so you don't really try and map out a lot of turns and bumps and stuff. And so that was one I did not have on my radar. And then came this health thing, which again I, I thought was completely independent. Which, as we, you know, the story progresses, they became, in my opinion, very much interrelated. Which we'll get to that. Um, Tell us what happened in your... Well, first, how did it feel to lose your job? I'm sure there's some other people out there that have lost a job. What is What does that feel like? What is that trial like? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And I don't want to make my thing seem harder than everyone else's, but 
it's one thing to have a job that maybe you're just doing it to make money and then you lose it and then it's a financial burden. This was to me a financial burden, but it was also an issue with, like I said, my, um, my passion. It's what I love doing and also my direction, what I felt like. And if you want to call it destiny almost, it's where I was supposed to be in my opinion and then it stopped so abruptly. Um, it kind of jars you and your security a little bit in multiple ways. Like I said, financially, but also just in terms of your uh, um, your hopes and dreams in a way, right? And so, yeah, that was on both fronts kind of um, difficult. I was, I'm was i a fairly optimistic guy, and so I'm like, okay, well, listen, this may turn into something better. We'll be, you know, we'll be stoked. A month later, I'll have a job somewhere else and maybe moving upward. And you know, that, that's where the frustration set in, was as soon as I realized that I'm not getting another job very soon, then I started getting, uh, I guess, nervous and frustrated both. So after a few months, when all the coaching jobs that were available got filled, what happened? What did, what did you do? Yeah, so... I, like I said, I lost my job officially July 1. The summer is basically when the whole coaching carousel turns around and coaches go out, coaches come in, and you know there's a very finite number of jobs because there's a finite number of schools. And especially when you're already a Division One coach, you're not going to want to you know go backwards. And so um, the options out there are very limited. And then once those get filled and the season begins again with the start of the school year, it's kind of that carousel shuts down. And so um, you got to look elsewhere. And so I started looking all over the places. I started applying uh, in like parks and rec stuff within city government. I started applying to like government, um, I, I guess like National Park Service, BLM stuff. I mean, a bunch of different random jobs that I thought would be interesting and my skill set might um, apply to somewhat and then luckily we have family in this world and they got your back and so my brother-in-law Parker who works in software development um, said hey listen I think I get you probably a, uh, a part-time thing kind of an internship um, but of course software pays a billion times more than <laughs> coaching does and so the pay was actually equivalent and so that was nice and so I was like, okay, yeah, let's go and, you know, let's see. I have absolutely no knowledge in this area, but if you think it's cool and you think I can do it, then uh, let's go. And so, yeah, we moved up to Utah County, and the, the office was downtown Salt Lake, and so him and I commuted back and forth up to the uh, office, and um, after getting that job, it became, um, it was tough learning a whole nother industry, um, but luckily they were understanding, and as an intern, they were not anticipating uh, a lot of results immediately. And so I think I picked up the, uh, the job fairly well and started moving along, you know, kind of assuming, okay, this is where I'm going now, you know, in this direction, which was, I don't know, the workplace was fantastic, the company was great, but I still was like, you know what, um, this just isn't what I went to school for. This isn't what I was supposed to do. And so there was always that lingering thing in my head where, as much as I liked working for that company, it was like something was missing. And again, confusion was always just kind of the, the theme of the season. So. so on that confusion note, when we moved up there, your symptoms became progressively worse, which he keeps hinting at. It all was confusing, all was confusing, but down the line it all made sense. Um, 
when did that make sense? When did things finally click in your mind that maybe this isn't all a coincidence that you lost your job, which forced us to move to Utah County, which got you a random software job, which you never thought you would have. When did it all kind of come together for you? Um, it was it was immediately upon diagnosis, I think. I think everybody was kind of like, you know, light bulb moment. It was like, oh, okay. And like, yeah, there was also tears and things, but it was kind of a, I, I see it. It was a big unveiling of, again, that big roadmap. The part that I thought I knew based on previous experience and also like expectation was replaced with an actual roadmap, which, you know, had some loops and turns, but all of a sudden it all came together and it linked back up. And I'm like, it was weirdly in a way somewhat like redemptive. Like I felt like, yeah, this sucks. I, I could die here. But like the whole thing, again, all connected. And to me, that mental peace of mind, and I guess spiritual peace of mind um, and understanding was very important to me. So how did it connect? What were the pieces that finally, I know, but they need to know like what series of events had to happen so that you were able to diagnose the cancer and all that stuff instead of what would have happened if you hadn't lost your job. Okay, so Cedar City um, is a small town. That whole area is isolated. It's like 45 minutes from any real t- like other city. Um, and there's a tiny hospital. And those who know coaching, uh, those who know coaching really understand the time commitment involved, especially with recruiting and everything. It's a... I don't know, it's a 60, 70 hour a week job. You're always gone on weekends. There's just no time for big medical issues. And so um, that was a place where I think in the end, we started realizing like, listen, a place with a tiny hospital, they had just gotten a cancer center there, but it was still kind of just kind of gaining speed. And uh, it was an odd, uh, my case was very different than what you would normally see in a squamous cell carcinoma in the maxillary sinus it's not something you see in anybody that doesn't smoke or you know has a job where they're working in some hazardous materials and especially a young athlete you know who's lived in clean air their whole lives and all that stuff so um it was a place that i think would that diagnosis would have been very delayed um again my mom being a nurse practitioner and again um trusting me and understanding that when I said something was a little bit weird, she got that, then um, the mm. ball rolled faster, I guess, towards that. Side diagnosis. note, Nate's mom is in Utah County along with all of Nate's family. So when we moved up there, we were surrounded by his family, which also became a huge part and huge piece to the puzzle that this was meant to be because going through hard times like this is so much easier when you have family around yeah so in the end um, it's also important to understand that the Huntsman Cancer Center in Salt Lake City is you know one of the very best in the world Um, and I think it's no coincidence whatsoever that my employment moved us right there where we would have access to um, on an occasional basis but eventually with radiation things on a daily basis to get the best care possible for an abnormal situation um, 
And so, yeah, these events, they all started stacking up in a very neat line. And it started, like I said, all of a sudden it made a lot more sense because here we are next to one of the best cancer centers in the world with an, an odd situation where I have a, you know, my mother who's saying, you know, let's get this looked at right away instead of dragging this out as a sinus infection and keep throwing antibiotics at it. Um, and a lot of things that had to happen when they happened for the result to happen the way it happened, um, you know, were in place. And I really, really looking back, you know, in hindsight, everything was really put there, you know, on, on purpose, I guess. It was by design. And that peace of mind, again, in retrospect, is huge for me, knowing that my life is um, being guided to that degree where, you know, we've got somebody upstairs looking out for us and, you know, building that road in front of us in the direction it needs to. There may be an obstacle in the way, and so all of a sudden when the road changes directions, it doesn't make sense until you see what the obstacle is. And then, you know, thanks for not letting me smash into it. We went around it, you know, and it made it all work out. And so um, one of the things that happened when I was diagnosed, I went straight on to, you know, PubMed and, and Google, Google Scholar and started looking up research and looking at, okay, what does this mean? What is it? What do I have to do? What is it going to mean for me in the future? And right away, I found a case study of a guy who was basically one year older than me, who had the exact same thing, and he was at the exact same stage of development and the guy was dead in a year and I saw that and I'm like oh this is not scared his wife <laughs> this is not good <laughs> and so you know some maybe some things we can wait a little bit on and be like oh you would have figured it out maybe a few months later you'd been fine I think this was really something that was a few days or weeks or maybe a couple months later and it could have ended you know as a, a fatal diagnosis instead of one that was positive in the end so um, things lined up when and how they should have to make it so that it worked out so it was really really uh, a big uh, confidence boost in those that have your best interests in mind yeah I really like what you said that there's it's so comforting knowing that there's um, a God if you believe in it or some somebody looking out for you, no matter how bad you think your life is going or it has been, that there is always somebody looking out for you who knows your best interest and can navigate your life so delicately knowing what is best for you and how to come with the best outcome um stepping back a tiny bit what was it like that day that you got diagnosed what's it like to hear the words you have cancer and not only cancer but i mean at the time they told us stage four which nate is adamant about correcting people because after i mean it was like a few months later one doctor who is who is the doctor of um, diagnosis, said it was stage three, a progressive stage three, so we can't quite say stage four. But at the time, they <laughs> told us, you have stage four cancer. What does that feel like? Well, let's touch on that real quick, the, the grading scale here. We were at the Utah Valley Regional Medical Center, which is the biggest hospital in that whole area, and the doctor there was uninformed enough to call it a stage four uh, tumor. 
and he was a cancer guy. And so I think this, again, harks back to what were the odds of being in Cedar City and having the proper care in place, right? If someone at a big hospital like that still couldn't get it right, um, it took a very high, high-level specialist in Salt Lake City to be able to get this straight. And so She's the one who wrote the book. She, she literally <laughs> wrote the book on how to diagnose this type of cancer. So Yeah, so I, I, it just harks back to the idea, right? It was very critical that we were where we were at the time. So, again, sorry. Um, so what was your question? I, <laughs> I was like, this How does it feel <laughs> to have the doctor look you in the eye and say, you have stage four cancer? Yeah, well... It's one of those, I don't know, I read a, a quote or a story from Frank Shorter, which he was the marathon champ, Olympic champion um, from the United States, pretty much the only one we ever had um, back in the 70s. And he was said, you know, I always think the Olympic champ is some kind of, you know, demigod, some amazing human. And then when I won, he's like, I'm still just Frank, you know how did I get this? And so when I got that on the opposite, you know, side of the spectrum, I was like, okay, well, you know, I always think cancer is these like decrepit, bald, old people who just look like they were in a really bad spot. We love you old people. <laughs> well, that's your mental <laughs> pictures. Like cancer is a, an ugly thing and it makes people look really bad because you're just so beat up from it. And I'm like, listen, I'm fine. Like, I'm running again. I'm actually in the best shape I've been in in a couple of years. I feel fine. Yeah, my teeth hurt or whatever, but I'm fine. And I, I literally, when I told my dad about it, I, I told him I had a little cancer. And I really was like, I, I might not have even really understood, I guess. Because we went home, talked to my dad about it, and we had talked to my mom about it. We talked to my grandma about it. And even then, I was like, you know, it's a simple just... I don't know, maybe the fact that it was in a sinus, which is like a hollow space, we could just go in, scrape it out, and we're good to go. I really didn't <laughs> grasp the gravity. But then the ENT, he was a really cool guy. I like that guy. And he was like, you know how doctors are. They're like, hey, you know, we'll go in, we'll get a, you know, a few things done, you'll be fine, you'll do great. And it's usually worse than they make it seem. This guy came in with like this solemn look on his face and was like, dude, you got a rough road ahead. And I'm like... I don't necessarily like the way that sounds. And so he painted a pretty grim picture. And for a doctor who, you know, it's important to make the people feel good, if that was him trying to make me feel good, that was like, that was a pretty, you know, a dim outlook on things. And so he, he told me that multiple times too. And so, yeah, getting that news, it took a while to sink in. It was literally days, if not longer, for me to grasp what that really meant well it didn't I didn't grasp it till after surgery to be honest so it took me about the second he finished saying cancer <laughs> <laughs> I cried enough for the both of us I, so. yeah, I wasn't even like sad honestly I was like <laughs> okay well what do we got to do just go in there and suck it out like what do we got to do so it was yeah it took me a little while um I wish I think that's a great thing though that even when faced with one of the worst trials of this life, you it you didn't let it freak you out. That's a lesson in and of itself to be learned that here you are having this doctor trying to scare you and make you realize how scary and dull your outcome may be. And you're just like, whatever, we'll get through it. Let's just get on to the next, you know? Cut it out, get going. And I think that's a huge part of why you've handled this so well um so you got the diagnosis what did the next little bit look like what 
what did your cancer life entail? Okay, so yeah. Your battle with cancer. Yeah, post-diagnosis, then the ball got rolling. That was immediately like, hey, uh, software job, you know, I am actually going to be done. I feel like the dude on Parks and Rec where he's like, accepts the job like 10 times and <laughs> goes right back in the next day and says just kidding I gotta go do something else side note everybody please go watch Parks and Rec <laughs> best show ever yeah so I was kind of I was always kind of him I guess in that situation I'd been there only like two months and I'm like hey guys I loved it but I gotta go and you know here's why which of course they understood but then all more the, than understood they were great yeah I uh I don't know. It was it was interesting. Again, that was kind of part of the whole puzzle of it coming together. Was the people who worked there were over the top good people. It was they made a huge impact on how this whole thing went for the positive. So, um, big shout out to those guys because I probably haven't told any of them thank you in the past because so, I didn't see them again after that really. Besides maybe one time, but. Um, after the diagnosis, it was a, a series of appointments and <laughs> moving things up the ladder from local cancer people to Huntsman cancer people to like five cancer people at Huntsman, meeting with radiation oncologists and meeting with, um, you know, the head, neck and throat guys, meeting with, I mean, God, the whole idea there was, hey, listen, and, and every time we went to Salt Lake, we met with Dr. Hunt and the, uh, you know, the head, um, you know, nose and throat and throat guy. Right. Yeah, he, uh, every time we learned something new and it was, uh, okay, well, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And by the way, we're cutting your, you know, your leg apart. Oh, and, you know, by the way, you're probably going to lose your eye. And oh, by the way, you know, all these other things. We're going to have to just completely do all these other things. And every time we went there, it was like a whole other piece of information. I was like, why didn't you say this last time? More bad news time and time. <laughs> it, was a, it was like a daily occurrence of, Oh, and then there's this, and then there's this. And so every time I went up there, I think it slowly settled in more and more and more. And so um, that happened. One of those things, like I said, was your eye probably will be gone. The ENT down in Utah County was like, dude, I'm cutting that thing out if I'm your doc. And so everybody was telling me it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Dr. Hunt being the nicest guy in the world was like, there might be a shot, you know. But, of course, <coughs> nobody else agreed with them. He was just trying to make me feel good. And so we had to meet with these, like, plastic surgery guys. We had to meet with um, this guy who's, like, the only one in the entire Intermountain West who does um, prosthetic eyes, and he does them like he's a painter. Literally, just paints, like, eyes based on a photo he takes, and then he, like, clips into your eye socket. It's pretty crazy. And so all these things were, like, slowly piling up and piling up and the weight and gravity of the situation was you know concurrently going up and up and up and that's where I really had to like dig in a little bit and be like okay what is this and how am I going to handle this and it was probably in that moment where we really started gathering the true picture and scale of what we were up against where I uh I probably had maybe the more important moments of the experience in terms of outlooks and and things like that, where I'm a, a big believer as an LDS guy in, like I've already said, the uh, the whole, uh, I don't know, the plan that is in place for us is divinely given, and, and we, we're, we're responsible for our lives, but we also have some help from above, and um, one of the great centerpieces of 
Christianity in general is Jesus Christ and what he did on earth was to provide peace and life for everybody and in that moment where I needed <laughs> both of those things you know um, it was it was a time when that great peace that can only come um, from him it showed up and it wasn't I'm gonna cry in my own wife's podcast. <laughs> You've heard this story before, haven't you? Um, but it was it was very very important to me, and um, it's the whole idea of um, grace and you know not something I really deserved or earned or <laughs> to be honest asked for. It just came, and I knew where it came from, and it was important that because from that moment and I don't even maybe don't want to call it a moment it was the entire time I never felt like my life was in jeopardy it was weird it was a it was a peace that can only come um, from him and it was I don't know <laughs> it was funny for how many really really smart dudes were telling me uh, you're probably gonna lose an eye and you might die and all this stuff none of it really bugged me because that was kind of the uh, the overarching um, sentiment I guess the piece I had was it was very sure and so um, it was I don't know I almost feel like I don't know how this would have been as somebody that didn't have that special assistance if you want to call it that I had that little bonus help um, from God and so if I'd have done that solo I don't know how I could have been a complete disaster mentally um, but luckily I don't know and so it was a, a critical piece to me from that moment on I was not scared um, and I really wasn't concerned again like I was saying before it was just like alright what do we gotta do let's go because I knew and I was sure that I had a family to still be a part of and kid one kid at the time to raise but I, you know I got more kids coming so we got to have those kids and raise them too and I don't want to be um, I, I want to be here for that so I got to be here for that <laughs> so we'll, I, I felt pretty good about the outlook I guess throughout that was a I mean an absolutely critical part to my outlook moving forward which I mean, his outlook, I was the one that was fretting and worrying, and I mean, still to this day, I still have anxiety a little bit about about what could have been. Um, because he was so blessed, however, he convinced me enough where I was able to stay pretty calm, too. So it was a, it was a really big blessing in our lives. Um, one that... I hope that those of you who are going through hard times can maybe search search for a little bit because I I mean we all have different beliefs and ideals but I I think anybody who searches for it can find some of that same kind of peace Nate felt. Um, so from the day you were diagnosed to the day you had surgery was about a month and like Nate said he had this assurance that things might be tough, but he was going to be okay. Um, but then entering the surgery. Yeah. I don't know if you had that same kind of piece <laughs> post-surgery. <laughs> yeah, that part. How, how was that? What Explain the surgery to us and how it made you feel and 
the struggles with that. Sure. Um, and can I give one shout out real quick? Mm-hmm. Um, we skipped over a big part, but um, there was a lot of support from community, if you want to call it that, family, friends, colleagues, etc. Um, that happened in this you know interim time period building up to surgery and. I had the hardest time. That was that was literally the hardest thing I went through before surgery was accepting the charity of people. Because at the time I felt fine, like nothing was wrong. I just knew something was coming. But I mean, at work, people who I had met for a month and a half donating tons of money, people who I had, like I had someone in the ward we were in at church who really it kind of more just had seen me at church but didn't know me. We had been in going to this church for a total of two months maybe at this time maybe not even so people just like threw like a thousand dollars out there and friends who i knew friends my age who i knew did not have the money were throwing out lots of money to me and i i considered those uh it was that was absolutely the hardest thing was to not just send it right back to these people i'm like you can't afford this dude you got to take your money back it was so hard for me and so why it was so hard is probably because you know i uh I knew what it meant, and it would, I don't know, it, it meant so much to me at the time, and I did not, I'm sure I didn't vocalize it, because if I would have called up everybody and said thank you, I would have cried the whole time, so I'm, I may have missed that, so you guys who helped out, and my sister who put on the race, and what I heard, which was during, during surgery, was a big success, and I know you guys all froze to death, but, um, we put on a little, we as in Nate's sister, Primarily one of his sisters, but all of his sisters and parents and surrounding community put on a, one of the biggest road races, 5K road races Utah has ever had on a bitter cold day in November. Yeah, and it was actually, I was talking to somebody about this last week. I missed the race. It was a good race. <laughs> it was a, I've never seen like a 5K, local 5K with like 15 dudes under, you know, under 16 minutes in a 5K. I was blown away the entire day because of the generosity and just the love people had for us but I did stand by that finish line and they were sub 15 on a freezing cold difficult course and that in and of itself was a miracle right there because it was a super fast race yeah so anyway sorry to deviate from the question but I just want to make sure that those people who did assist um realized the impact they had on me and it was actually still have on us yeah it was it was hard (laughs) it was hard not to write you a check right back because i'm like i don't need it that bad you might need it more than me but anyways thank you all of you guys if you're listening for that um okay so surgery day was really early which i hate early mornings so i go really early up to salt lake um went up there um had all the same symptoms that had been lingering the whole time. We actually, correct me if I'm wrong, we got bumped up, right? His his symptoms were getting progressively worse. We called the doctor on a Wednesday describing his symptoms, and they didn't like the way it was sounding. And they're pretty booked out up there. Um, but somebody had just... Someone was too weak to do surgery. Too weak to do yeah. surgery, so we took their spot the Thursday after so from the phone call to surgery we had like 12 hours to prepare to go in we we thought we had another two weeks I think I was supposed to be at the race and then all of a sudden yeah I was gonna miss it but 
anyway, so that happened. So all of a sudden we went on this kind of rush timeline, got up there. Um, and again, they had warned me kind of ballpark what was going to happen, but I really didn't get it, you know, and I guess you can't until it happens to you, but the surgery was supposed to entail what's called a fibular flap, which essentially the, the, the maxillary sinus is just to the side of your nose on your face, and it takes up your whole cheek area, and it's, I think it's your biggest sinus you have in your head, and so it was full, and it was breaking the bones surrounding it. It had broken into my nose, it had broken up into my eye, and it had broken down into my teeth roots, hence the pain, and then it was messing up the nerve, which is why my face was numb. Um, so it was breaking out on all sides. It was just starting to overtake everything. So the surgery was go in, pull that out, take out your whole cheekbone, take out your upper teeth, your whole jaw, um, and... You know, the plan was to take my eye, too, because anything that tumor touched was supposed to go. And they had to have margins on top of that um, to make sure that, you know, it was clean and there's no, no lingering, I mean, one cell left that could continue to, to grow. And so they had to make sure everything was clean. So this is, the surgeries took two surgeons who tag-teamed the thing. One was um, deconstructing and cleaning up, and the other one was reconstructing. And... Um, what the, did they use to reconstruct well, say, well, the, the way that they were going to fill the giant hole they made in my head was through taking out my fibula, which is the, the outside leg bone. It took basically the entire length of it, um, some of which was just packing, and some of it was to build up my cheekbone the best they could just manually do it. And then some of it was... Um, they salvaged more than just the bone. They kept some of the like vessels with it that they needed because the bone had to still have blood supply. And so they, I mean, it's pretty nuts the degree of um, capability these guys have. But they rebuilt my cheekbone, trying to match the other side while still plugging in the the vessels down and weaving it through my <laughs> I don't even know, but weaving it through down into my neck and plugging it into my you know, arteries and veins in my neck and they literally like sewing wet noodles on wet noodles and I mean it was crazy what they were able to do. Um, and so now I have a huge gash in my leg, took a huge chunk of meat and fat out of my leg and the entire fibula which then is now in my face um, and they just rebuilt it with all the, the material from down there and so yeah the top half of my or the, the left side of my upper jaw was completely gone including all the teeth and the roof of my mouth is not the same in fact they cover that with leg skin <laughs> he had hairs in his mouth leg hairs so yeah you want some dirty details yeah the, uh, <laughs> my mouth until radiation really got going it was just my leg skin and so the way your leg hair looks was inside my mouth growing and so it was pretty pretty gross so um, they literally just replaced my face with my leg. And so anyway, that was the, that was the, I guess, sanitary version of what happened. But the, the, the reality of it was, it was what, 17 hours? How long is it? About that. A yeah. little more with all the prep and coming in at, out of anesthesia and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I vaguely wake, I vaguely remember kind of coming out of surgery eventually. And it was this really like. Um, dreamlike state where I wasn't very capable of understanding what was going on and I just remember choking and I couldn't talk because they had you know 
they put a trach tube in so I could breathe because my face swell, would swell up so bad I wouldn't be able to breathe. And so they had to just, um, they, they just they knew they had to cut a hole in my trach. And so they, they had that going with the tube coming out of my neck. And uh, because of that, it, you can't talk. And so I just felt like I was choking and drowning and no one could hear me because I couldn't yell. And it's just like this nightmarish, like waking up out of surgery. And I remember like in a huge haze, trying to figure out what to do because I was about to die, I thought, drowning. And so I started banging on the side of my like uh, hospital bed to get attention. I remember the nurse came in and like cleaned up things. I think I had like, I don't know, I thought I threw up or something. I don't even know. I can't, it was really like hazy and weird, but I thought I was dying. And then I went back to sleep for a long time and then I came back too. And it took probably a day or two to really kind of start figuring out where I was. And one of the big question marks the whole time was my eye, right? And again, back to the community, we had everybody we knew praying and fasting and just hoping for really, obviously, well, obviously the whole thing goes well, but they, I really wanted to keep my eye. I really, really did. Um, that was really important to me. And a lot of people knew that and they, they pushed hard for that. And so um, that was a big question everybody had. And probably one of the biggest miracles that occurred this whole time was the fact that everybody was telling me it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. They got in there and um, your eye sits in its own capsule essentially and it had broken through the thin bone underneath the eye and then pushed up against the eye membrane but much to their surprise and amazement it had not actually like penetrated that and they were like, it was literally just like smashing into it without breaking anything somehow. And they were like, that was the plan. No one was thinking otherwise. And we got there and there was no way that we could justify taking your eye out because everything was just barely good microscopic, enough. Microscopic, they, they said. They said microscopic margins there and it just somehow worked out. And so that was a massive miracle, I think, in this whole process too. A little interjection from the outside world when Nate was totally passed out. Um, the surgeon who did, who was one of the two main surgeons, came out and talked to us as the surgery was wrapping up. And he was one, he was the surgeon who wasn't hopeful at all. He said he'd been burned before and there was no chance he was saving the eye. He came out obviously exhausted after an 18 ish hour surgery and he looked pretty amazed. He was like, I don't know why, but there was, we couldn't justify taking his eyes. He was like, I have no idea how the cancer didn't spread there because it spread everywhere else. It had broken through every single other bone, pretty much broke through every barrier except for his eye barrier. So yeah, so everybody except me knew I had two eyes still. Um, <laughs> I was so unaware of what was going on that I didn't even have the wherewithal to even ask about it or because I had a patch over that eye too, I couldn't tell, you know? And so, and I don't even know what it would feel like to not have another eye. And so I didn't know, I was like, is this how it feels? Like, what is going on? And um, those that were my family that were around know that I couldn't, I had to write on a uh, piece of paper to communicate cause kind for, of right. for a few days. Mm-hmm. And when I looked after we got out of the hospital and I, they kept some of those papers, it was nonsense. Like, I couldn't even write in a straight line. There weren't even words. It was just absolute nonsense. I was not there mentally. And so 
Um, I went through a bunch of ups and downs. I'm not somebody that suffers from anxiety pretty much at all. I'm a very like mellow person. And that next call, almost month, was just full of like minute to minute massive anxiety attacks that I am not accustomed to. And I was not handling it very well. I was a grumpy dude. Everybody hated me because I was super grouchy. I hated everybody. And I was trying to write to people because I, I was so frustrated I couldn't talk. And then when I, I couldn't believe they couldn't understand what I was trying to write to them. And then, like I said, after I saw it, it meant nothing. It was, it was not English at all. <laughs> and so it was just a lot, a lot of that. And the worst of it was probably by Sunday. I was, I think the fog of the surgery and anesthesia all came off where I could feel everything, but I was in the worst part of the whole healing process and I was hurting bad it was miserable and there were times where I'm like you know I remember thinking like I know this could kill me and a lot of these surgery a lot of these cancers do kill people I'm like you know I'm cool if it happens <laughs> like should we just let this go pull the plug let's just call it a day because i am not enjoying this and it was hard it was really hard and very painful and consistent amount of pains and i was maxing out all the pain meds i'm the guy that not because i'm a tough guy and i want to act tough but i just literally just a lot of times don't need pain meds more than like once after surgeries and and this was overbearing it was it was maxing me out in terms of my pain tolerance and things and um my i mean my hematocrit some of the weird numbers coming out of this too is they wouldn't give me a blood transfusion much to my mother's chagrin um my my hematocrit was down in like the low 20s i think like 21 or something which means he didn't have a lot of blood in his body yeah you should be in i mean especially someone like me i should have been in the 40s and which i'm my essentially my red blood cell count was half of what it should be i was just not feeling good they wouldn't give me a transfusion because they thought it might cause a little bit higher chance of relapse and all this other stuff and i was just suffering and anyways i had to get injections in my stomach every couple hours they were checking they had electrodes in my neck you know mapping out blood flow of that you know insertions they had done in my neck to the, my leg bone they had put in there i mean they had so many wires and things and every five minutes i'd try and fall asleep they'd wake me up to do something else and it was a mess and i just again consistent anxiety attacks where I was kind of a Nazi on my mom and my wife because they were always in there. Like, and I'm like, check my oxygen, check my oxygen, check my oxygen saturation. I was sure it was like in the 60s or 70s, and it was always fine, 95%. But I thought I was suffocating nonstop. Um, Trey Cole would fill up with random sludge <laughs> and, <laughs> and gross stuff, and the Casey would be like, I'm sucking this out because no nurses around here, and like, I don't, I got mad at everybody. It was a mess, and so. That week in the hospital, usually people are like, I gotta get out of the hospital. And I was done with a week and they had to kick me out. I did not think I would survive if I left. I was that anxious about everything. Even a week after surgery, I thought if I left, I would probably die. I was, I needed them there every second of the day. And so I still felt that bad after a week. And so they kicked me out, which was not my favorite thing. <laughs> he was very grumpy about it. <laughs> um, sent you home with the feeding tube still in with a wheelchair because you couldn't walk yet um and obviously you didn't you thought you were going to die going home because there weren't the proper precautions to keep you alive um 
But you got home, and what happened after that? The first, the first like three nights were horrible. There was another point. I think it's the first night that we were home, sleeping in a bed, pretty much sitting up. And they always told me, hey, if you let that trach hole get infected, your lungs will get infected, you'll get pneumonia, and you'll die. And so the whole time they kept harping on me uh, about that. And so I had that in my head. And I woke up at like 2 a.m. one time, and I'm like, wow, it's, it's like gargling. There's some gross details here. It was just gargling every time I was breathing. I thought it was just, I assumed my lungs were just full of just green infected disease and I was dead and so I'm like god I should really like wake up Casey and I'm like ah she's sleeping I'm not gonna bug her I should call my mom as my um primary care physician and say hey this is not good ah she's it's like 2 a.m I shouldn't wake her up "Ah, I should call 911 and get the (laughs) I'll just call those guys and I'm like nah I'm just gonna you know what I'm just gonna (laughs) die (laughs) I'm cool with that like you know what it's over. It's, they probably can't get all this goo out of my lungs anyways. I'm just going to just lay here until I die. The and fact that you were okay with dying, too, I, I, shows what kind of, how much suffering you were actually in. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty okay with that at that point. And um, then, of course, all my stirring about woke up Casey, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, I, I think I'm dead, just so you know. You know, I may not last more than a few more minutes. And so she's like, dude, get out of bed. So we walked over to the bathroom, and she helped clean out all this gross stuff. And turns out I didn't die, <laughs> but I was sure of it. And that's just a kind of a window into my anxiety level. And I just, every five minutes, I thought I was dead. And so eventually those nights you know they were still sleepless i just lay there um for a few nights but eventually it would just slowly get a tiny bit better and about a month later i was still in consistent just like discomfort but it wasn't like sharp pain anymore and i I was starting to learn to walk again um i could play with aims again and um yeah what was it after christmas i actually jogged for like half a mile or something when we went to texas so it was I was quickly improving, but it was so, it was, the depth was so far that it took a while to get to a point where I felt like I could even manage and even, you know, have a, a halfway comfortable life at all and, you know, then started the next round, which was, you know, radiation. Um, so during that time, I'll make a few little side notes, stuff he didn't mention. He came home with a feeding tube, which he got out a few days later. So he, for over a week, was only being fed through a tube. After that, he could only eat blended up food slash liquid type stuff. So everything he ate came from a blender, which um, a friend of mine left a blend tech, one of their best ones, on our doorstep one day, which to this day I think was a big part of him recovering because we use that thing for every meal for months um he had a lot of things he had to learn to eat again walk again breathe again normally everything i mean he couldn't open his mouth it was different talking it was there was a lot of really big things and he kind of breezes over them but it was it was pretty difficult so just when you were starting to feel a little bit better, a little bit of relief, radiation starts. What's what's radiation like? Okay, so the plan was chemo and radiation, and like we had alluded to earlier, 
um, Dr. Hitchcock, she basically wrote the book on the, the, the procedural therapy post certain types of cancer. And so she was very adamant that I did not do chemo. And we just went radiation, and we went really hard. And so that's what we did. And, of course, she's a radiation oncologist, and so she favored the radiation side. And so what radiation was, they basically just bombard you with radiation directed towards a specific location um, with the idea of if there's any residue of, you know, cancerous cells, that will just basically fry them. Um, Obviously, it fries good cells as well. And so... Um, there's plenty of side effects along with that, um, and it happens, it took, it was about two months, two and a half months, you go in Monday through Friday, and you get a certain dosage overall, and I can't remember the numbers to be honest, but they hit it pretty hard, and... I believe you're at one of the very highest doses that they're able to give somebody. Yeah, they don't usually don't push beyond that for because and they tell you that up front. Like, listen, this could actually cause you to get cancer again. Um, it's radiation, so um, it, it, it usually the good outweighs the risk there, but not always. And so, um, what happened was I drove every single day in, and I have road rage, and so I hated driving to Salt Lake every day. A quick public service announcement, please don't drive in the left lane if you're slow. <laughs> you make people who have to go to radiation every day really angry. And so I was still an angry dude at that point. And so we went up every day, went, got in, undressed, wore a gown, sat in a room full of like 90-year-old dudes and then me who was like 29. And we just sat there looking at each other. And then they'd call us one by one back. We, well, we saw the same people went into the same area and you sat on this crazy table and this big old thing rotates around your head and because there's a lot I mean your head's pretty sensitive your nose and everything when it started blasting you could taste it and you could smell it and it smelled like just like burning metal almost like a really chemical smell and I I, to this day I hate that smell and uh, you go in you lay there for a few minutes they fry you and you get out and go home and every day that smell got worse and the feeling got worse and um, all the symptoms slowly got worse. There was about a week and a half, two week delay. And so the first week I'm like, dude, this is easy. And it, it takes like a week and a half or two weeks for that really to kick in. And then on the backside when you're done, it takes that long for it to stop getting worse. And then it starts recovering. And then, um, and so it's a whole process of just climbing a mountain of accumulated radiation and side effects. What are the symptoms of the radiation like? Um, what, what were you experiencing? Yeah, a lot of dry mouth, a lot of, I mean, really bad sore throat and really bad like canker sores. It basically just melts the inside of your mouth and your throat. And because they had to shoot my neck too because that was a concern they had. Um, so it really just fries a lot of those sensitive tissues in your mouth and throat um just lined with canker sores eventually and honestly the hardest part for me was and you're tired you're really really tired as well um, but the hardest part for me was it really alters your taste um because it just melts your tongue down basically and i couldn't handle the taste everything tasted it didn't lack taste everything tasted horrible I and mean, it tasted like like i said chemicals it tasted like metal it tasted just uh, just poison and I was already trying to gain back about 10 pounds that I lost from surgery and I could not gain any ground on the weights we were dropping like five, 600 calories a little 
juice box things and just putting down anything I could, and it was just horrible. Um, I, still to this day, that part was awful. I just, I, you started contemplating things that you don't usually contemplate, like just the burden of having to eat three times a day to stay alive is a nuisance, and you just want to be like, why do I have to eat all the time? <laughs> like, it's just one of those things, like, you don't think it's a problem, but eating was a huge burden to me. I hated it. At one point, we went to Golden Corral or corral or some buffet and try to find some kind of food that you could tolerate i ate everything there one little bit of everything there to say okay and i had a list on my phone (laughs) and i wrote i wrote on a note on my phone i forgot about that we went down i if it tasted good to me i i said all right i put that on my list of edible foods and there was like five things in the whole place and eventually i subsisted on cinnamon sugar toast strawberry milk and this really salty pork roast that my sister brought over one time and that's basically what my last like month of radiation diet was those are the only foods that didn't taste as bad as the other ones and luckily pork roast you know throws a lot of calories in and strawberry milk a lot of those boo shakes too that he would just i just pound those yeah didn't matter what they tasted like but anyways yeah the the food thing actually was the hardest i thought radiation i mean would be hardest for all those other things i listed but, and they say like it'll, it can just completely rot out your teeth and all this stuff. But again, my age I think helped me in my recovery a little bit there. But the the tough thing was the food. I hated eating with a passion. It was miserable every time, and I couldn't open my mouth. So it was frustration on top of annoyance. So we're running out of time here, but let's. I want to hit a, a few kind of more rapid fire questions here as we finish up this this podcast um so you lost your job you got diagnosed with cancer you had a crazy surgery followed by crazy radiation for months what then you had it wasn't a very long amount of time i mean from the time you got you lost your job in July, and then you were declared essentially cancer-free after radiation about March 1st. Um, so it was this huge whirlwind of things that happened. What what was your outlook on life after all that happened? I mean, you went from people telling you you were going to die to people telling you that the cancer was in remission. And But what now? Yeah, the uh, the whole idea that I was supposed to coach was still in my mind. Um, so that was an ever-present thing. But the surgery, I mean, beforehand, like I said, I didn't feel bad, right? And so they were all to me, it really just felt like the surgery. They just messed me all up. And, I mean, there were a few symptoms from the, the tumor itself. But other than that, I felt fine. So I couldn't open my mouth, right? My eye wouldn't drain anymore um i don't know a ton of stuff like that and so there were a bunch of follow-ups you know surgeries they cut part of my jaw out later on and they did an eye surgery where they you know had to reroute my tear ducts and i don't know and there's complications of course with those and so there was all the medical side um but again the coaching carousel rotates in summer and so the surgery happened in november 
radiation was done March, and then I had time where I just slept all day long for every day, and I finally started coming out of that haze, went on a couple of good vacations, and then by like May, I started going after the, uh, the whole application thing. But then I got a call from the software job, and they were like, listen, Nate, we loved having you, and we want to offer you a full-time job, because remember, I was just an intern there. And a full-time job would have doubled probably my salary from what I was getting as a coach. And I'm like, that is awesome. And of course, my dad's like, dude, you have to take this. And everyone, the logical thing would be to do that. But again, I felt very strong that coaching was where I was supposed to be. And so I, uh, I prayed about it, you know, went to the temple about it and, you know, really thought hard about it. And I really felt strong again that coaching's where I was supposed to be, even though I got fired from my last job. And so... And so I had to turn it down with zero prospects from the coaching side in line. And so that was, they understood, of course, because they're really cool, but I was nervous. And of course, my wife was nervous and everybody was nervous. Like, ah, what are you doing? Like, this is, this is a risky road. We have a lot of medical bills. We do have a lot of medical bills. And so anyways, I, I, again, I put my, my faith and trust in, in God and went for it. And I trusted in the direction I feel like I received from him. And so I went, you know, both feet in, applied for one job, didn't get it, applied for another job and I got it. And compared to the odds of, I did not the summer before, I did not get a job. I didn't get an interview. I didn't get a phone interview. I didn't even get an email back really from anybody. It was sent an application in into the thin air and it never came back. It was a barren wasteland in terms of the job prospects I had. I mean, nothing, and not even just coaching, all the other ones too. And so for me to just go after it again, hoping, it was kind of a big risk. And so to have my second job not only become an interview, but also a job was miraculous to me as well. I know people don't think of it as that, but I thought it was yeah, I thought it was huge. It was huge. And so that was at Idaho State, you know. Casey and I drove both. We literally landed from a vacation and drove up to Pocatello from Salt Lake City at night for the interview and got the job and um, been there, been here ever since, I guess. You know? Two and a half years now. Yeah, it's two and a half years. And like I said, we have, you know, we've come to like this place much more than we had anticipated. It's a really cool place. I really like Pocatello. Okay. Um, I have a few rapid-fire questions. Nate's kind of a long-winded guy, which <laughs> I love about him, but for time's sake of this podcast, um, a few different things I kind of want you to briefly, just first thing that comes to your mind, tell me about. Um, um, you were one of the lucky ones. You had somebody stare you in your eyes, a medical professional, and say that you might die. You probably will die, but you didn't, and you're still here two and a half years later. You have another kid. You have an awesome job. Do you ever feel any survivor's guilt? No, honestly. I do feel more sympathy for those who maybe not necessarily died from it, but had it worse. I was talking to you before that I think this podcast would be great to help people realize that, hey, life's not so bad. And even the situation I was in, I mean, I remember watching movies about war or whatever and 
people getting their legs blown off. It was a very non-delicate process, you know, and people went through it. People all the time go through more than I've gone through. And so I almost, it's put into perspective that level of suffering, and then it gave me more appreciation for those that suffered and do suffer more than I do. Um, and I don't know, I guess it just puts things in context more. On that note, what what are the main things that this trial has taught you? What have you, obviously I think you're a great example of somebody who didn't let this trial beat you down and ruin your life. You made, this trial has propelled you forward, forward miles ahead of where you were previously. What, what were those lessons that you've learned and continue to learn because of it? Um, well, from a spiritual side, I think that's the number one takeaway. I think for me as an individual, as a personal thing, um, my relationship with my God was, you know, accentuated multiple times over. And he became much more real and not just a, a guy in a book, right, that people talk about at church or whatever. It's, it's a real thing, and it made real changes and real effects in my life. And so it solidified, my, I guess, my faith that way. So that was huge. Um, also, knowing that my life is being guided I can trust more that things will be okay when you know like I said the road deviates from the course that I think it should be going in um, I may not understand but I can trust and I think you don't have to always understand to trust and so that was a big part of it for me too that yeah I think it's this way but apparently it, there's other ways and other options and it'll always come back around to where it needs to be um I, I love the component of trust. I feel like in trials, that's a huge, huge thing, trust, faith, whatever you want to call it, to get you through something. Um, what would you tell somebody who is currently going through a hard time? You are kind of on the other side now, right? I mean, we all have little things that come up day to day even, but you went through this, you climbed this giant mountain and we're on the other side, right? We're, we're past it and through it. What would you tell somebody that's climbing that mountain right now? Um, that's a really tough question. I think there's so much individuality to everybody's issues that it's tough. But again, I think that, like you said, the trust thing's big, trusting that things will work out. Um, put all your effort in to it and, you know, let it be what it is. Don't stress the things you can't control. I mean, we hear that kind of advice a lot. Um, but just put your head down and go. And it, you've actually taught me this, that things will get better. And if you can trust that things will get better, then today isn't so bleak. Because um, one day down the road, you'll be out of it. And now here I am stressing little things again. And it's all just part of the roller coaster. And so I guess with really tough times become... It's funny because there's still silver lining to it. And what you even brought it up, when I was going through radiation, it was actually a great time in our lives because I was home with my wife and kid like all the time, even though I was sleeping. But we got to go on a few good vacations because we were, with my free time, I was collecting airline points, you know? <laughs> and I mean, there's a silver lining. So find the good parts in it, you know? I fell in love again with the childhood food, which was cinnamon sugar toast. And so, like, little things like that become huge. And if you can latch on to them and uh, enjoy the parts that are 
good. Not everything has to be bad. And so find them, really grab onto them, and and just just roll with them until the rest gets better, and it'll be fine soon. I love that. I I mean, that's one of my main hopes for this podcast is to help make everybody realize that even when we're going through bad times, even when you feel like you can't even get out of bed and there's no hope and you just, I mean, Nate's, he was there. He wanted to die. Everything felt terrible. He wanted to die. I hope that you can realize, and even if, even if it's just a thought for one time a day that there's something worth living for there's hope out there there's something good in every single day but you kind of have to search for it when the times are hard but there is good out there um and we're believers of that now after going through some hard things and i hope you guys can all take away a little bit of that hope from nate and his amazing story thank you nate for being a part of this first episode yeah i'm really happy you're doing this and i hope you guys make it a habit to listen to this because i think um i don't know i i'm actually genuinely excited to see different perspectives because to me i see the uh the whole purpose of life is to grow and it's all about progress and so it's much better to learn from other people's issues than your own so if you can take away lessons from other lives i think you'll do yourself a big favor so um, really pumped Casey's doing this. I think it can help out a lot of people, and I hope you are one of those people that it can help. So jump on board. Let's go see how this first season goes and the cool stories we, we hear. Thanks, Nate. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Hope it brought you a little bit of knowledge, inspiration, and a good hour to your day. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week.